Welcome to Procopio Perspectives, a podcast featuring award-winning corporate and litigation attorneys providing useful legal insights on the latest issues of the day. Now, here's your host. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest installation of the Procopio podcast. My name is Miku Mehta, and I'm a partner at Procopio Law Firm. Today, I have my colleague, Mike Jones, senior associate with me. He is an expert in export control compliance and consulting. And we're going to talk about the recent restrictions on export, including those to Huawei. As you may have recalled, about a year ago, the BIS issued very restrictive rules on export to several Huawei-related entities. And over the course of the last year, every two or three months, there have been new announcements and rules from the BIS. Most recently, the direct product rule was modified on May 15th, about a week ago. So I'm going to ask Mike a few questions about Huawei restrictions. Mike, can you give us some background about these restrictions that were announced last year? What kind of activities they cover, the technologies, that kind of thing? Absolutely, Miku. I'd love to. Uh, So on May 16th of last year, Huawei Technologies and uh, a number of its non-U.S. affiliates were added to the U.S. Commerce Department's prohibited entity list. This effectively meant that companies cannot export U.S. origin goods, items, things, or U.S. origin technology, know-how, design schematics, technical information, or U.S. origin software to Huawei without first obtaining a export license. Wow, These that's pretty strict. What kind of... Uh... Uh, difficulty would it be to get a license? What kind of standard was there for a license? Well, the licenses for export to Huawei were indicated as going to be examined under a presumption of denial. This means that they are going to be subject to a longer examination period and stricter scrutiny both by the Commerce Department as well as the Defense Department, the Treasury Department, the Department and the Department of Energy. Fortunately, shortly after Huawei was listed on the entity list, a temporary general license was granted, allowing certain types of activities to be exported to Huawei or certain types of export-related activities to occur involving Huawei. So it seems to me that unless your activities were on that temporary general license, the TGL, that if you were an entity in the United States, regardless of whether your technology was one of the more simple common technologies known as EAR or something that's more restricted, you wouldn't be able to export to Huawei. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, it, there was no restriction that it, it they, or there was no exception that simple technology could be exported to Huawei without a license. These restrictions apply to any technology, regardless of complexity. So even the simplest technologies, which are classified as EAR99, cannot be exported to Huawei. And certainly the more restricted or or more secure technologies can't be exported to Huawei without a license. So what about products that are made outside the United States based on technology in the United States, developed in the United States? Well, these restrictions apply to goods that are made in the United States, even if they're located outside the United States, goods that are physically located in the United States, even if they're made outside the United States, and they also apply to goods manufactured and located outside the United States, even if they include more than a certain de minimis amount of U.S. origin commodities or software. 
So what about another situation? What about where the R&D was done in the United States and then sent overseas and then the goods were completely manufactured outside of the United States? What about that situation? Well, that type of situation is covered by what's known as the direct product rule. This technology, this rule covers, uh, restricts the export of any goods, even if wholly made outside the United States. If the goods are the direct product of certain U.S. origin R&D or technology, or if they're the product of certain U.S. origin manufacturing equipment or manufacturing plants. This direct product rule was modified last week on May 15th to expand its reach uh, as it relates to Huawei, as we'll talk about in a few minutes. So you had mentioned about the TGL, which seems to be the main way that a U.S. company could export to Huawei under these current regulations. Can you talk a little bit more about what that's all about? Sure. Originally, the TGL allowed four specific types of export activities uh, or export circumstances to occur if Huawei is involved. The first was relating to continued operation of existing telecommunications networks. Huawei has been active in providing equipment for telecommunications networks being constructed and to facilitate those constructions uh, of existing networks. The TGL allows the continued export to Huawei so long as the network was under construction at the time of the TGL last year. The second area that allowed export is to support existing handset models that were released or product lines that were developed and and made publicly available before the TGL went into effect last May. Third, exports related to detection of cybersecurity vulnerabilities in those headsets and in operating systems uh, can be done with Huawei. And then the fourth category in the original TGL related to participation and disclosure of U.S. origin technologies related to 5G standards being disclosed at uh, 5G standard meetings, duly recognized standards bodies. And are these TGLs still in effect? Well, the original TGL was scheduled to expire in August of last year, but it has been extended several times uh, and most recently was extended last week on May 15th. Now the TGL will continue until August 13th of this year, but when it was extended, it was modified to remove the 5G standard exception. So under the modified TGL, only existing telecommunications networks, existing models, and cybersecurity export purposes are allowed, and the 5G standards are no longer allowed. So just to sum up, what are the ways in which U.S. companies can engage in export with Huawei? There's three. There's the support of the existing telecommunications networks, there's the support of the existing handset models, and then there's the report and detection of cybersecurity vulnerabilities. So that's how you're able to participate under the TGL. Uh, Well, can you also just simply apply for a license? Uh, You'd mentioned about the presumption of denial, so license is difficult, right? Yeah, that is, that is true. Yes, you could seek a license, but the license process is a little unpredictable now because they're all of the Huawei-related licenses are being examined by a specific unit within the Commerce Department, and, and they're being given a lot of scrutiny. So it's very difficult to get an export license for Huawei. There are some that have been granted, but they are very difficult to obtain. 
This is great to know. This is really helpful for my clients. I was wondering if we can drill down a little bit more on the 5G aspect. We have questions that come in about researchers attending 5G conferences and wanting to know what kind of activities and communications they can engage with with respect to their colleagues from Huawei. Would you be able to give us some guidance on that? And what is the BIS given us in terms of guidance, opinions about what our clients ought to be doing in this situation? Sure. So the critical to the analysis of what can and cannot be done related to the 5G standards organizations is the public availability of the information. In an advisory opinion issued last August, the Commerce Department clarified that the TGL was being modified to remove the 5G exception because only publicly available information should be disclosed to Huawei in the circumstances of the 5G standards meetings. So with respect to what researcher activities can do, they have to only be disclosing publicly available information that is publicly available at the time they're disclosing it, or they have to be disclosing it in a manner that makes it publicly available simultaneously. So for example, a researcher can share previously published white papers or technical articles that they've written with Huawei once they've been published, but cannot share the unpublished or the proprietary technical documents. And similarly, the researcher can present at the public meetings associated with a 5G standards body, but they can't present at closed door meetings if Huawei is present. So are these examples actually in the advisory opinion? Many of these examples are in the advisory opinion. And it's important that the advisory opinion clarifies that a researcher can only participate on discussion boards or emails if they're doing so on panels or boards or email listservs that are publicly available to the interested public. A researcher cannot present non-public information at a closed door meeting, and they cannot share technical documents with a private email listserv or over private emails if the, the disclosure of the information is not making it publicly available to the interested public. Now, the addition of Huawei and the subsequent TGL have primarily focused on telecommunications and semiconductor manufacturing technologies. Miku, are you aware of any other technical areas that have been impacted by the other export rule changes that may have occurred over the last year? Sure, Mike. I'd be happy to talk a little bit on that. There were a couple of changes this year and last year related to export controls on artificial intelligence technologies. The first announcement was made in October 2019 by the BIS. In this announcement, several overseas artificial intelligence companies were listed as requiring a license to receive any U.S. origin technology products or services that are subject to the EAR. For some of those listed technologies, the license could be granted on a case-by-case -case review legal standard, which is a little bit more lenient than the presumption of denial legal standard that you had mentioned earlier. Secondly, just a few months ago, in January of this year, the BIS issued a completely separate rule that prohibits the export of software that is specially designed for the automation of the analysis of geospatial imagery to all destinations except Canada. Now, Miku, in this rule that came out in January, what kind of effect does this have? It, it seems like that's a fairly broad description of technology. 
Yeah, so the BIS actually gave us some pretty good guidelines on this. For the covered technology, I could say that it relates to geospatial imagery software that is specially designed, and the word specially designed has a special legal meaning, for training a deep convolutional neural network, CNN, to automate the analysis of geospatial imagery and point clouds. The BIS also gave four different conditions that have to be met. Uh, the first condition is that a UI has to be provided that lets a user identify objects such as vehicles or houses from within geospatial imagery and point clouds to extract positive and negative samples of an object of interest. Second one is reduction of pixel variation by performing scale color and rotational normalization on the positive samples. Third, the software must train a deep CNN to detect an object of interest from the positive and negative samples. And finally, the software must identify objects in geospatial imagery using the trained deep CNN by matching the rotational pattern from the positive samples with the rotational pattern of objects in the geospatial imagery. So that's the guideline from the BIS. It's very detailed, but keep in mind that, again, differently from the presumption of denial, you can apply for a license, and the license will be reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis by the BIS. Now, Miku, I, I just want to clarify that you, you identified four specific criteria. Do all four of those criteria have to be met? Yes. If anything less than all four of the criteria are met, your technology does not fall within this rule, and a license is not required under this rule. So it sounds like this rule has to be analyzed closely to see its application. Exactly, exactly. So clients would be well served to check their technology against this rule to see if they need to apply for a license. AI is another area which has been impacted by the export control regulations. So Mike, I was wondering if we could go back to something. Could we go back to the direct product rule? Uh, you'd mentioned that that rule was changed on May 15th. Could you please describe a little bit more about that rule and what was changed? Uh, I'm curious how this might impact our clients. Sure. So prior to May 15th, the direct product rule was limited to apply to only foreign made goods that were direct product of certain U.S. technology or certain U.S. types of manufacturing uh, equipment and manufacturing plants. Specifically, the U.S. technology had to be controlled under U.S. export control laws for national security reasons. This is the strictest type of restrictions that the U.S. export control laws impose and is fairly limited to only the most advanced technologies and generally didn't include many of the technologies that are being practiced commercially in the telecommunications, semiconductor, or artificial intelligence industries. So what happened to change that on May 15th of this year? The rule was modified last week to expand its reach. As I said, originally it was only limited to technologies that are controlled for national security reasons. Well, last week it was modified to also include certain specifically identified export control classifications or classification categories that are identified in the modified rule. And those more broader classifications apply if the foreign made goods are destined for certain specifically identified entities on the commerce control list. Currently, the only entities that have received the designation to be subject to this modified direct product rule is Huawei Technologies 
and its non-U.S. affiliates that have been placed on the list uh, last May and throughout the last year. So this rule seems to have a pretty broad reach. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about the export classifications? You mentioned ECCN might be used uh, for this rule. What kind of technologies is this rule targeting? So this rule targets three categories of export control classifications. It targets category three, which is electronic devices, and it targets both the most restricted classifications within that, as well as the broader catch-all provision in that category. So it captures a wide variety of semiconductor manufacturing technologies and associated software that are widely used in the industry. Additionally, the rule also captures category four, which relates to computer devices and computer device manufacturing equipment. So that also affects semiconductor manufacturing technologies and the software associated with semiconductor manufacturing technologies. So it's clear that this relates to semiconductor manufacturing equipment and some computer devices. Are there other technologies beyond this that are also implicated? Yes. The third category, a third category was, was captured, and that's category five, which relates to telecommunications and wireless communications devices and technologies. And the modifications capture both the most restricted classifications in the telecommunications chapter, as well as the broader catch-all that apply to most civilian telecommunications and wireless communications related technology. So these newly captured technologies are not limited to technologies that were restricted to national security reasons and are very likely used more commonly in the industries affected. So clearly the semiconductor manufacturing and the telecommunications manufacturing industries could be greatly affected by the broadening of the direct product rule. So just to make sure I understand, the key technologies that are impacted by this rule are semiconductor manufacturing equipment and related technologies, computer device and computer device manufacturing, and telecom and wireless. So for those technologies, uh, in order to export, we need a license, even if it's through a foreign intermediary. So long as we know it's going to a restricted entity, is the answer to get a license then? Yes, the expansion of the direct product rule likely affects a lot of the technologies in these industries, in particular the semiconductor, the computer manufacturing, the telecommunications. So if companies are developing technologies or conducting research in the U.S., but they're relying on overseas manufacturing to send goods to Huawei, then those transactions will likely require a license under this expanded direct product rule. Further, if a company is using a U.S. origin equipment to manufacture products in an overseas factory or an overseas foundry, products of those equipment and those foundries um, will likely also require an export license to be sold to Huawei. Now, Miku, we've done a pretty thorough review of the, these new rules. What do you think the top actions that a company can take right now to reduce the risks and maximize their business opportunities at the same time? If I had to pick a top three in terms of recommendations to comply and maximize the business opportunities, I would say the first step would be risk assessment. It's really important to know your technologies well and have them classified in terms of their ECCNs at a very granular level. And then as you shift into other technology areas or you acquire new portfolios or companies, 
update your ECCNs so that you're aware of the risk from a technology perspective. Also, be aware of the risk from an entity relation perspective. Know your customers, know your supply chain, and know your rights and obligations under the contracts with your customers and supply chains, and keep those under review as time goes on. That's what I would say the first step is, risk assessment. Number two, internal policy development and implementation. It's important to have a policy that fits your organization and complies with the law, but is also simple and straightforward to roll out in terms of user engagement, whether it's your internal users or your customers or suppliers, as well as implementation. And then finally, you have to check to make sure your policy is working to control the risk. And the best way to do this is to check for compliance by performing periodic self-audits, performing training, rolling out information to relevant users, and to be flexible and be able to quickly move as the rules change. One other thing that I would mention is, depending on your technology, try to have what I call a break glass plan in order to handle potential changes in the rules that might come in the future. So those are the three items I would say are the top three recommendations. So thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate your taking the time. If you have questions on these topics or others, feel free to contact us and have a happy rest of your day. We hope you enjoyed this Procopio Perspectives podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already and visit procopio.com to learn more about Procopio. Thank you for listening.